0: When my kids were little, one of the things that we did that was one of my favorite things was we'd go to the beach and we'd build a sandcastle. We lived in New Zealand where they had a lot of beaches, only about a couple kilometers from where we lived, and so it was a frequent activity for us. We had all the tools for sandcastle making, and you know what it's like. You've been to the beach, perhaps, and you've built a massive sandcastle, a fortress that you put a moat around. You spend as much time as you possibly can to do it. The kids are giggling, they wanna They want to build it higher and higher. And then there's always that fateful moment where uh, a rogue wave comes and destroys your mighty fortress with usually one massive water blast. Your kids probably start crying a little bit, or they're frustrated because they're thinking to themselves, we put so much time and energy in there, and Dad, why didn't we build it further up on the beach? And you know, of course, that there wasn't wet sand there, but you don't want to explain that to the kids anyway. It usually turns out to be more of a mess than you thought when you started. I've thought about that image recently uh, when I've read the book of Ecclesiastes, Mostly because if I had to summarize the first couple chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, here's what they're saying. The projects we put our energy to rarely turn out how we want them to or expect them to. The stuff that we spend so much time doing and investing in usually doesn't fulfill what we expect it to fulfill. Um, and if you think about that, actually, the kinds of happinesses that we try to get from our activities on earth, it really is our experience. I mean, Ecclesiastes is not lying, uh, lying about that. It's telling very much the bald truth. The, the teacher, or as he's called in Hebrew, Kohelet, really hits the nail on the head, at least when it comes to our experience. I remember my son, when he was qu- uh, quite little, we bought him a, dino- a mechanical dinosaur that uh, he saw on, on a... On, on, on the ads between, um, between the shows that he was watching on TV, and he begged and begged and begged for it, as he tends to beg, and uh, we got it for Christmas. I was so excited, it was like the biggest box. We opened it up, it moved its head up and down, and it roared in a, a, a mechanical, electronic roar, and he was done with it in about five minutes. He's kind of shrugged and, and walked away. I think he played, played with it one more time uh, last week. But, just kidding, it wasn't last week. But you know, you've had that experience as well. You expect something to be really great and then you get it and it, it just moves its head up and down and, and makes a mechanical roar and you're kind of bored with it. Even the stuff that we say about our lives. We want to change the world, we say. Think about the people in the last little while who've tried to change the world. I remember Barack Obama became president of the United States, right? The first African-American president it was amazing. To have that happen, and then of course he tried to inst- institute a whole bunch of laws and ideas, um, you know, uh, national health care in the United States. And then the moment that Donald Trump came along, he erased all the stuff that, that Obama did, like in the first few days. And then of course uh, Joe Biden now is is in office in the states, and he's erased everything Trump did. And I'm sure that the next person will return the favor to Biden, and on and on. And on we go, so did they change the world? I guess for a few minutes. But that's the way life is, it's really fleeting. You can give your energy to, to something and it, the next guy who comes in, the next girl who comes in, they do it a completely different way. And then you say, what was the point in all of that? What was the point in all of the energy? Why in the world do we spend so much time building this sandcastle when the wave comes along and wipes it out? It all seems just so futile. It's like chasing after the wind. And those are the words that Kohelet uses, right? Those are the words that the book of Ecclesiastes uses to describe life on this earth. And so the question that comes up in our minds is, how then should we live? You know, with the knowledge that that's actually the way things function, how then do we live in a world of futility? How should we view the stuff we buy, the comforts we try to gain? How do we view our work, our world-changing adventures? Well, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is trying to answer that question. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 14. And in this passage, uh, I want to separate it into three parts so we can study it together. First, uh, we're going to talk about our experience. And second, we're going to talk about our frustration. And and finally, we're going to talk about our response, or how is that we should live in light of that frustration. So our experience, our frustration, our response. Here's the first of those. Our experience in verses 1 to 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You will recognize the language in this passage if you ever listen to old music. So here it is. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. To everything, turn, turn, turn. Right? That's a song from the birds way, way long ago. I think it's been redone by lots of other people, but who cares? The birds were the first ones to do it. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. There are certain words there that we want to look at and kind of investigate a bit. That word time is actually in Hebrew a word that means appointed time. It actually refers often to appointments that are made in, you know, in the scriptures. Hey, I'm going to see you here tomorrow at this particular time. That's our appointment together. The dentist gives you an appointment. What's interesting about the word here in this context is that it, it is an appointed time, meaning that the time has been given to you. You, you didn't choose it. When I became a Canadian citizen, I remember uh, that my appointment for when I was supposed to take my oath was very different than uh, a normal dentist appointment where they you, you, know, you haggle back and forth between whether it's going to happen in you know, January or February 3rd or whatever it is. When the government tells you that you're going to come and take your oath as a Canadian citizen and they're going to give you the Charter of Rights and they're going to do all the stuff and give you a little Canadian, you know, flag pin, they say you're going to be here at one o'clock on this particular day. That is your appointed time and you don't have any control over it. You have to clear your schedule, you have to make sure you're there at that particular time. That's the idea here. This is an an appointed time. we understand, of course, that the person appointing the time is, is ultimately God. That's what Kohelet is actually saying. There, there is a, an appointed time for everything. And by everything, he means everything. In fact, uh, the, the poem that follows in verses two to eight is really interesting because it's structured as, basic, as seven uh, verses with 14 couplets. So. The, the number is the one I want you to focus on. Uh, it's Hebrew poetry, there, f- there are 14 comparisons that are made but they're done together in seven couplets and this, the, the number seven in Hebrew is, a, is the perfect number and there's the reason that the author does that, the reason that Kohelet actually tell, does this poem as a seven. And uh, it's because he's trying to say that, listen, this is, this is a description of the complete life. The fullness of our experience on the earth. He's trying not to leave anything out. There's an appointed time for everything. All the experiences you and I have under the heavens and that phrase is a reference to life on life on earth. Some people when they hear that uh, under the heavens who some interpreters when they come to the book of Ecclesiastes they say well this is Koheleth. this is the teacher saying This is what life is like when you don't have any faith in God. i got to tell you, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think under the heavens means that. I actually think that what it means is that this is the life for everybody on earth, whether you're somebody of faith or somebody not of faith. What kind of life do you experience on this side of eternity? And Kohelet describes it. It's a frustrating one. In fact, here's the way he describes the experience. Verse two, he says there's a a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. We we don't choose when we're born or when when we die. It's chosen for us, right? It's a time that's appointed for us. And you've had those experiences, I'm sure, I hope not the experience of death yet, but you have friends and family who have experienced death You've seen people who've, who've died just after you've seen them. I, I remember um, hearing about a, a, a man, uh, he was from another church, uh, my, a friend of mine who's a pastor, he just told me about it um, a few months ago. He said, look, there's a guy in our church, he showed up to the hospital, he had a headache. That's it, he had a little small, small headache and he could, couldn't see stuff really well. But he showed up to the hospital, they did some tests on him, they called him back the next day because some of the results from the test came in. They said, you need to come down to the hospital right away. So He gets down there and they sit him down in a room and they say, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have, you have a brain tumor that we can't operate on and you probably have a, de- a few days to live. All that from a headache and a little bit of vision problem. And seriously, in t- two, three days, he, he, was, he was dead. It was so sudden. I didn't wake up one morning and think to himself, well, today's the day I'm going to die. Death comes upon us. It it is a time that is appointed for us. And similarly, birth is a time that is appointed for us. Uh, One of the most shocking times in my life that I was woken up at 3 a.m. was with my wife uh, yelling loudly that that the bed was all wet, the bed was all wet, the bed was all wet. And of course, I looked around thinking, did I I do that? And um, I didn't. But she, after being pregnant for nine months, had her water had broke and I was like one of those chickens with with its head cut off running around trying to throw clothes in the bag, you know, because you see that on TV all the time that you're supposed to panic. And she's like, just settle down. We got time. We have time. No, we don't. And then the birth of my son hours later, my firstborn son, was one of the most special moments of my life. I didn't choose the time that he was going to be born. I certainly wouldn't wouldn't have had our water break at 3 a.m., right? It should have been at like right after I had a nice lunch. But we don't, we don't choose the time of our birth, and we don't choose the time of our death. But those things are appointed for us. We can't control them. Verse 3: there's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down, and a time to build, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. We know that. The, the, we, there, there are weeping and mourning times, and there are dancing and laughing times. I got a phone call from uh, my father uh, at 6 a.m., nine years ago, um, and it was Basically him saying your mother had fallen last night and she had hit her head. She hit her head on the side of a dresser and you know days later she had she had passed away. I've never experienced that kind of mourning. There's a time for that. When you, when you lose your job or when the relationship breaks up. There, there's a time for mourning and we don't choose those times. There's also a time to dance and to rejoice. I, I, one of my happiest moments and one of my happiest memories of my life was I went away to uh, a Bible school in Austria when I was in college. I had been dating my girlfriend, who's now my wife, uh, before I went. She broke up with me while I was there because she said she wanted more space. I was in Austria anyway, that's a little bit weird. But we broke up, and we, but we kept the correspondence going through airmail letters, this before the time of, of emails. and. Um, I told her at one point, hey, if you're at all interested in being at the airport when I, when I get back, it, it would be great. But don't, seriously, don't worry about it. Um, I know that we're not you know, seeing each other and stuff like that. And so I was unsure as to whether she was going to be there when I came off the jetway. Um, and this is back in the days where you could go to the gate, right, before 9-11. You go to the gate and uh, you could welcome the people back. From, um, from their holiday or from their, from their trip overseas. And uh, I, I, I got off the jetway, I saw my parents, I saw a couple friends, um, they had little noise makers. and welcome home, Jeff, big sign, and on, but on the, on the end was Jeannie, she, w- she was wearing, I could tell you exactly what she was wearing. It seared into my memory. The picture, even when I close my eyes, it's there. I, I remember the next five days of my life with her were some of the most amazing days of my life. They were filled with laughter and, believe it or not, dancing. I know you would have liked to have been there to see the dancing, but it, it was great. Um, there's a time to mourn. There, there's a time to laugh. It's a time to dance. Verse 5, a time to scatter Stones and a time to gather them. That's probably a, a, a sexual reference. I know it sounds weird to us, but sometimes in the Old Testament they would use these little uh, these little sayings that don't sound like sexual references to be sexual references. The reason we think that is because of what it says next: a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So they're parallel. So gathering stones is the same as uh, refraining from embracing. So. But do you see that? Uh, there's a time to refrain from embracing, huh? Kohelet knew about COVID all those years ago. There's a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away. I mean, he's talking about our possessions here. There's a time to search and a time to give up. There's a time to keep, there's a time to, to throw away. Stuff gets lost or, or it or just gets old. I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna tell you a, uh, a too much information thing right now but I feel like I can trust you. Uh, I have this weird thing where I have a really hard time throwing away my socks and my underwear. And it, it is not a good thing because some of them have an enormous number of holes in them. But I feel, I, genuinely, I feel, maybe it's my OCD, but I feel like I've, I've formed a relationship with them over the years. They've been great support to me. And so uh, when it's time to they get all holy and I just can't do it. And my my wife actually will have to come to me and she'll have to say to me, Jeff, there is a time to keep and a time to throw away. And she will take them and I say, you have to take them and throw them away because I'm not gonna be able to do it. And if I find them in the trash, I probably will pull them back out. Uh, Too much information, I I know, but there's a time for everything. A time to tear and a time to mend, verse seven. A time to be silent and and a time to speak. And it's a reference to mourning, right? We tear our clothes when we mourn in the, in the Old Testament. There's a time to be silent in reflection about how bad things have been. There's a time to speak. There's a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now listen, these aren't prescriptive statements. Now Kohelet is not coming along and saying, you should hate. You should war. He's just trying to describe life on earth and he's trying to say, man, it is filled with the ups and downs, with the joys and with the sorrows. That's what life is like under the heaven. We can't control when we experience these things and we can, can't control the fact that we experience these things. God has established moments for all of this and everything in between under the heavens. We have a habit though, as people, as our common humanity, one of, one of the things that's similar between all of us is that we have a habit of wanting to control the uncontrollable future. There's a book, in fact, that's, that has come out a few years ago, in fact, and uh, you know, has made a big deal about it and a, a number of others have. They've made movies about it now. It, the book was called The Secret. The principle of the secret is, is basically, if you say into the universe enough positive things, those positive things will come true. Some people call it the law of attraction. What you speak attracts certain things about which you have spoken to happen to you. So if I want to go get a car, I should go to the car lot and I should speak, this car is mine, this car is mine, this car is mine, and eventually the Lamborghini is in my garage. Um, lots of testimonies from lots of people saying that this has basically changed their lives. But the principle behind it is look, you don't have to wait for the world to affect you. You can affect the universe by just speaking positively and embracing the law of attraction. You can control it all. You don't need to be under someone else's appointed time. You can appoint the times. You can make your future exactly what you want it to be, exactly as fulfilling as you want it to be. This is basically what ancient cultures did when they had witch doctors. Right, you go to the witch doctor and you say, hey listen, I, I want to have a baby. And he says, all right, well, uh, you're gonna have to give me the eye of newt and you know some sticks and chicken bones and you know, the blood from, from your, your husband and we'll mix it all together in a cup and we'll say a, a chant over it and uh, you'll have a baby. It's a way of controlling the future. It's a way of saying, hey, I, I want this thing, and I, c- I can do it. I don't need to wait for somebody else to appoint things for me. I'm going to do it myself. You know, you and I, we tend to laugh sometimes at those kinds of approaches. Like, who goes to a car lot and starts saying that kind of stuff? I mean, come on. We laugh at some, some of those approaches, and, and we Christians, we say, well, we know life has its ups and downs. We recognize that, and life under, under the heavens in this side of eternity is not going to be all bliss its ups and it's got its downs. So we say we know that. But do we? I told uh, before about a time I had in one of my seminary classrooms where I was sitting next to a Russian guy and he, he, had, just, he had moved to, um, to Dallas from Russia. This is in the 1990s and so it's just after the, the Russian um, people were able to travel after the, after the breakup of the Soviet Union but he'd grown up under all the oppression and difficulty of the Soviet Union. And he was sitting next to me in my class, and, and we were you know, taking prayer requests, and there were people in the front praying for you know, their, they had an in, ingrown toenail, or they had, I'm no kidding, I mean, everybody was praying for some sort of health thing, or little things that were happening, you know, downsides to life. And he, he kept kind of snorting and, and, and like just shaking his head, and I didn't know what he was thinking. When I mean, we prayed for everybody, and then afterwards, he leaned over to me and he said, One of the things I've noticed about you Americans is that life surprises you. And I think he was probably right. Like we say that we know that the world has ups and downs, but we act when the downs come like we're shocked. Wait, wait a minute, what is this? I have insurance, I have all the money, I have all this stuff, and yet death comes upon my family? Trouble comes into my life. What is this? And you can hear people echo that sometimes because in those moments, they end up kind of shaking their fist at heaven and saying, why, God? It's almost like they, they think that the downs won't be there, that they're not going to be there. But that, that's not life under the heavens. Life under the heavens, you deal with letdown. You deal with heartache, and with joy, it's both. Here's the cold truth about life. It is a crazy roller coaster that will both make you laugh in delight and make you wanna puke. We aren't in control of when the joy or the nausea will set in. How frustrating. And that's what Kohelet goes to next. His poem makes you frustrated, if you understand what he's trying to get at. And so verse nine, he says, what, what do workers gain from their toil? So we started with our experience and now here's our frustration. What do workers gain from their toil? I, I have seen the burden that God has laid on the human race. Um, the question, right, what do workers gain from their toil, is it's repeated actually from the beginning of the book and so the, the answer is understood, well, nothing. It's kind of the point. Nothing, nothing is gained from workers from their toil because uh, we're gonna have to face the downside. You, know, you think everything's gonna be good, but it actually turns out not so good. Maybe it will be good for a little while, but the not so good is just on, on the horizon. And that's a burden, he says. That God, the pointer of these times, has laid upon the human race. It's it's something that all of us deal with. The literal Hebrew reading here would would, would be, I have seen all the business God has given people to afflict them. (laughs) is that interesting? That God has given us business to afflict us. The, The life situation we have is afflicting us. All of our good activity is coupled with the bad, and we have no control over, and this says Kohelet, is an affliction, it is, an, it is a burden that we have to bear. There's an old joke that I love to tell. You've heard it before if you've heard me speak. I've, I've shared it before, but he, he, here it is. Uh, there was a really optimistic little boy and a really pessimistic little boy who were on, living under the same roof. And their parents were concerned because the optimist was really an optimist and the pessimist was really a pessimist. And so we went to the doctor and uh, the doctor said, well, let's try to fix this. Let's, get, let's try to get the pessimist to be more positive and let's try to get the optimist to recognize the world the way it is. So uh, first he took the, the pessimist and they took him into a room and they had purchased all, his parents had purchased all the toys that he could ever want and he went into the room, he looked at all of them and he started to cry. And they said, why are you crying? He said, oh, oh, if I play with these toys, they're just gonna break. Oh, fine. So they tried the, the optimist, they put him in a room that they'd filled to the, as high as they could in a big pile of horse manure. And the kid went in there and immediately started squealing in delight, he climbed to the top of the horse and he start, manure and he started digging underneath it. And they said, what are you doing? He said, with all this manure, there must be a pony in here somewhere. It's a good joke, come on. But I actually identify more with the the pessimist. And the reason I identify with the pessimist is because, yeah, that's the way life is. Honestly, every good thing that seems to happen, it's difficult not to have an Eeyore approach to it after a while, because if you live long enough, you realize that all of the good stuff is followed immediately by the bad. And you can't control either of them. Kohelet says that that is a burden that God has laid on us. Verse 11, he kind of describes the burden a little more. He said, he has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That word beautiful, that that God has made everything beautiful in its time, the the better translation would be God, God makes everything fit beautifully, or everything appropriate, for its time, that it fits together like a puzzle piece. Everything, all the ups and all the downs, somehow work together in God's mind to make a beautiful story that he is writing. But he's put eternity in the human heart and what that means is that we know that there is an eternal purpose to it all. We, like, we recognize that even though we're under this frustration, we know that there's a purpose to it all. The problem, is in the third line, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We just don't see the whole picture. We know that there's a purpose. Our hearts scream out to a, to a perfection of the plan, but we don't have any idea how it all works together. And that's a burden. Um, I'm being filmed right now, of course, in the downstairs of our church. If you could look around me, you'd see that uh, it's not as clean as what the screen makes it look like. We tried to eliminate all sorts of stuff. I have a table down here with water on it. One of the things I've noticed as we've been in this COVID time is that I've been involved in lots of these kind of filming things. We film different parts of our services at different times and sometimes I've been a part of the the individual pieces like this. I have no idea how in the world this is going to fit together with the rest of the service. I just don't. Sometimes I'm worried about it. (laughs) Sometimes when I do announcements or, or when I've done a little short video I go in front of the camera I talk for two minutes and then they take it away. I find it frustrating because I don't know how it's gonna work out, I don't know what it's gonna look like, but I'm always impressed. I'm always impressed at the end, not with my contribution to it, but with the ability of the people who are doing the filming, the artists, to put it together in a comprehensive whole that makes it all fit. And when I see that, I immediately think, right, there is a purpose in all of this, I didn't know what it was, and I found that frustrating, that's what, that's what Kohelet is saying. Your and my parts are just little pieces, when I say parts, in our lives, are just little pieces of a grand story that God is telling, and only he knows the beginning and the end of the story. And We're just supposed to do our part. He's the one who puts it, puts it together and makes it fit beautifully in its time. But we get frustrated with that. Of course we get frustrated with that, with that burden. There's a calmness, in fact, in Florida a number of years ago who was advocating suing God for negligence because he couldn't see how the world fit together and he was thought this was ridiculous and so he started to to write his column and in the middle of it he got around to sharing this story he said I'm not sure if he or she meaning God is all that mindful of what goes on down here Here's an example. One of my first assignments as a newspaper reporter was to visit a church in Fort Myers, Florida where at an Easter Sunday service the roof came in. Most of the congregation escaped serious injury but the church was destroyed and the only thing left standing was a statue of Joseph, the Virgin Mary's husband. The preacher told me that he looked on the statue's survival as a sign of God's love. And had I not been a professional journalist observing this scene in an objective manner, I would have said, hold on, pal. A sign of God's love? It sounds like the old, he beats me because he loves me, line of thought. And that's bogus. Because if God, in all his infinite wisdom, drops a concrete roof on his true believers, but spares a bunch of modeling compound, It's time to question his priorities. If I have to be composed of plaster to gain the attention of the universe, something is bad, bad, wrong. And those of us who are Christians, we listen to that and go, oh, come on, that's that's too brash, that's too harsh. But I got to tell you, whether you're Christian or you're not, you you feel that, don't you? Like The stuff that happens in the world doesn't seem to make sense makes sense. We know that there's a meaning in it all. We just can't see it. And that's our frustration. Finally then, our response. How do we live in, in, the, in the not knowing? Uh, how do we live in the midst of this frustration? Uh, verses 12 to 14, Kohelet kind of gives his answer to that. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good. That phrase, do good, means to enjoy themselves. I know that there's nothing better for people to be happy and to enjoy themselves while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So look, one of the two responses that he's going to mention is right there that this is the gift of God, that finding happiness and enjoyment in our work and life, even as we don't know the massive purpose and how it all fits beautifully together, that is how we ought to respond. Which is a little bit surprising, because if you know anything about the history of the the church, um, you'll know that there was a period of time where the answer to how should we then live was a bunch of monks going out into the wilderness and living in caves and saying, I don't want to have anything at all, life of simplicity. And that's great for them, but Kohalit is coming along as saying, look, here's what you need to do. You need to accept the ups and downs of life and accept the frustration of not knowing exactly how each moment fits into God's greater plan, accept those things as being true and real, and then recognize and delight in all your joys as a gift from God. Let me, I'm gonna say that again, I wrote it specifically. Accept the ups and downs of life and accept the frustration of not knowing exactly how each moment fits into God's greater plan and then recognize and delight in all your joys as gifts from God. When I was working in, in um, the farming community of eastern Washington state called Colfax. I used to drive to church uh, out every day. It, it, it was, took me about 15, 20 minutes to get to the church out in the middle of a wheat field from the town that I lived in. And I'd go by all of these different fields. Some of them had cows in them and others were just being, you know, growing wheat and stuff. And there was one section that had all these cows in it. And I remember riding by, or driving by this one section and seeing the same cow every day. And he was doing the same thing. He was fenced in, barbed wire fence, and he was reaching his head through the barbed wire fence trying to eat the grass that was growing up out of the ditch. He couldn't reach it. He wanted so desperately to eat the grass that was growing up out of the ditch that he had like scrapes and he was bleeding on his neck because he was constantly trying to reach for it. What I thought was remarkable is in the middle of the field, was grass that was way greener and way nicer than the stuff in the ditch. He just didn't realize that he had it. I think that that's the state of human existence. I think that you and I are so constantly trying to understand how everything fits together and we want to reach and know it and it scrapes our necks up, how frustrating, I wanna know, I wanna know, I wanna know, when actually the farmer's given you all sorts of great stuff to rejoice in. And maybe, just maybe, the place of you and I, cows, is not to try to strain forward and try to put together the whole puzzle, which is only God's knowledge, but instead maybe our place is to turn around and to look and enjoy the grass. My professor, Ron Allen, at Dallas Theological Seminary, when he was teaching um, Ecclesiastes to us, the assignment he gave us on one evening was go home and take your wife out to a a meal, a good meal, not McDonald's, take take her out to a good meal and um, then take her to a movie. And I was like this is the best school ever and you are the best teacher ever. At the time I didn't totally understand like why, why are you asking us to do that as we were studying Ecclesiastes and now I do. What he was trying to say is, look, you know, seminary is hard. You guys are worried about your future and how your lives are going to fit together for the purpose of God. But what Kohelet is saying is, let God worry about that. I know you don't get it. That's life on this earth. There are appointed times for everything. But you worry about the great joys that are around you. You worry about the fact that you you live in a city that has movie theaters just down the street and Dallas has got some of the best Tex-Mex going and so you rejoice in the things, rejoice in the grass in your field, basically. I was on trial once in my life, like an actual court trial, I'll explain it to you sometime later. (laughs) I remember sitting there in the courtroom and I was so frustrated that God had put me in this situation. I did not know why, I was innocent. I thought, you know, everything was going anyway. The jury was out deliberating about whether I I was guilty or innocent. I was sitting next to a friend named Eric. He had his arm around me. And something came over me in that moment. I looked around and I realized that all this time I had been trying to figure out what God was doing in all this. And I was so frustrated and angry at him And I realized, it's not for me to know it. And I looked at my friend Eric and I realized that he had taken an entire day off of work and so he could spend the time with me here. Uh, My pastor, Hutch, was sitting across the room praying for me. My family was there. I got this overwhelming sense of joy. And the people around me and, and the things that I didn't realize. And I came to the conclusion that, <laughs> that okay, God, listen, I don't know what's going to happen here, but ultimately I'm yours and I'm going to leave that in your hands and I'm, I'm going to rejoice in the things that you've given because they're gifts. I was let off. Of course, I'm here. <laughs> I remember going to dinner after that. We went to Red Robin. Ah, Red Robin's a pretty good... Um, a pretty good burger stand. But that night is the best food in the world. I never had a better burger. And I think it was because I was just focusing on, on, on the eating and the friends and the family and all the joys that God had placed in my life. And I was focusing on them because I was freed. Freed from the frustration and let him just be him. It all fits beautifully somehow, but how it fits beautifully is not for me to figure out. My job is to enjoy God's, God's gifts. So that's one of the ways we're supposed to respond. And then finally, the last verse, verse 14, he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Like, why is it that this God has orchestrated our world under the heavens so that we struggle? with his frustration? Why is it that we don't know his plan? So that we would worship him. So we, we, we would recognize we're not him and he's him and if we try to put ourselves in his shoes and doing his stuff, it's really, really hard. We are not built for it. God is built for it. We're built for doing our little part and letting him take care of the picture. And doesn't that make you worship? Speaking of worship, and I'll finish with this, I, um, when I was working at another church years ago, I remember, I, I make all sorts of jokes about worship leaders all the time, because I'm like, what do they do? They don't do anything. They stand up and they play the same songs they've played like 50 times. And they say, we're going to practice on Thursday night. What are you going to practice? Like honestly, you're going to stand around, you're going to talk, and then you're going to eat muffins, and you're going to play the same songs you've always played. So I always make jokes about that, and I don't know what they do. Um, when I was in, in New Zealand I, at, at my church, I used to make these jokes at our, our pastoral meeting, and finally our, our lead pastor, um, I was the teaching pastor there, he said, okay, Jeff, if you think it's so easy, because my friend Paul, who was our, one of our worship guys, was, was shaking his head and trying to fight back with my, 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 my sarcastic critiques. The lead pastor, Donald, he said, uh, fine, Jeff, you're going to lead worship this weekend. <laughs> I said, well, whatever. And he goes, no, no, seriously, you're going to leave worship this weekend. And I did. And it was awful. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. It was so very, very bad. I could never figure out when to come in for the, to the song. They would play the the intro over and over again, and then they'd pause really long, and I'd, I'd nod and go, okay, and then you don't know what to do with your hands half the time, because I don't, I didn't play the guitar. It was kind of standing up there, and I realized at that moment why all these old worship guys would do this all the time, and we make fun of them, but I'm like, what do you do with your hands? I don't know what to do with them. The whole thing was a gong show. After the service, a couple of the people from the church came up to me, put their hands on my shoulder and said, Jeff, you probably should stick to preaching. That was their way. And I was like, absolutely. Anyway, the next week, our pastor's meeting, the subject was Jeff and his worship leading, and let's do a review. And they spent a long time doing a review and making fun of me and my inability to do that. But you know what? I walked away with it. I I, I walked away with a a deep appreciation of a fear for what our worship guy did. And that's really what God has done. He said, look, you're not in a position to question or to put things together the way I do. If you had to do it, Bruce Almighty-like, you'd realize that only I'm the one who can put it together. And when you try to step into my shoes and do the things that only I'm good at, no wonder you break down. So what should you do? Turn around, stop scraping your neck, and enjoy all that grass, and worship the God who gave it, for He alone is the King Eternal. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for Your grace. Uh, I'm I'm thankful, Father, for the frustration You've placed us in on this side of heaven. It makes us long for uh, a new world. It makes us want to worship you for your brilliance and your wisdom. And it also frees us to live our lives in a more simple, straightforward, in the moment. What have you for me today? What are the gifts that you've given me today in my work and in my relationships, Father? And I pray that you would help us to see that that's our place. Thank you for this book for Ecclesiastes, for Kohelet and his wisdom we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.